It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. If you want someone to follow and put into practice a particular thing, uh, they typically more they need more than just a description of what it is you want them to do. They also uh, need an example of how to follow it, of how to put that thing into practice. You know, I think this is very clearly seen with kids for all of us who are parents and, you know, we'll describe to our kids what it is that we want them to do, like describing to them how you want them to clean their room or, or describing to them how you want them to, to demonstrate love to different members of the family. And if you, you really want your child to do that, you really want your child to, to show that kind of love to different members of the family, first you would want to describe and tell them and, and define Find for them what that is, but then you would want to be that example to them so that they could see that love in action. Because it's far easier to follow an example than it is to follow a description of something. And you know, as we grow older and become adults, really things don't change much in that reality. It's easier for us as well to follow an example of what we're supposed to do than just a description of what we're supposed to do. And I'm sure most of us who have uh, worked a job recognize this reality. I remember the first job that I got when I moved here was I installed satellites for DirecTV. And, you know, I went into my orientation and sat down with a boss and I had never done anything like this before. And so he's explaining all the ins and outs of, you know, how the satellite works and how to get the little satellite tuned into the large satellites and how you're going to connect everything in the house to the TVs and stuff. And half of the stuff he said just didn't really connect with me. And I was thinking, man, I'm not sure, you know, I'm going to be able to do this job. And then the next day I went out with him from house to house to house. And I just watched as he did the work of installing satellites, as he was that example of here, this is how it works. This is how you do it. And after watching him a few times, I was able to start doing it myself and then finally being able to do that job. And so the example was far easier to follow than just just the description. And so if you really want someone to, to grasp something to the point where they follow it, to the, where they practice it, you know, descriptions are good, but examples beyond descriptions are even better. And the reason I bring this up is because this is exactly what the author of Hebrews does with this topic of faith. You know, we've come to Hebrews chapter 11, and we have this amazing chapter dealing with this topic of faith. And the author starts by giving us a, a, de- a definition of faith, describing what faith is. And that's what we looked at last week. The author tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
You see, biblical faith has substance. It's based on things that actually exist and are real. It has evidence. It's based on facts that we can uh, prove. So biblical faith is not just blind faith, void of reason, void of evidence. It's a faith with a foundation of substance and reality and evidence, substance and things we hope for, evidence and things we have not seen. And if you missed that message, I encourage you to to go back and listen to that because that's kind of a foundation for what we're going to be looking at the next few weeks in this chapter. Now, as great as that definition is to kind of encourage us to be those who practice faith, for those who follow faith, the author knows, you know what, if I really want my readers to understand what this looks like in a life, I need to give examples. And so after he gives us this definition, he spends the rest of the chapter giving many examples of people who lived a life of faith that you and I can follow. And what I like that the author does is he doesn't just give come general ideas about people. He actually is very specific about each example and looking at something specific in their life in which they lived by faith in, uh, like in their worship or in their walk with God, in their works for God, in their obedience, in their parenting, in their leadership, in their following of God, in their fear of God, in their fighting for God, in their dependence on Him, in their suffering, in their persecution. We're going to see all these different elements of people walking in faith or living a life of faith in those different areas, which is great for us because, you know, we're going to be able to look at our own life because the Lord is really wanting us as we go through this to just kind of take inventory of our life and the different areas and to ask ourselves the question, am I walking by faith? Am I living by faith in this particular area of worship, in this particular area of parenting, in this particular area when I'm going through persecution or whatever it may be that we could see in example and that we can look at our own life and say, is this something that I'm doing? And if not, that that would be something we would ask the Lord to help change in us so that in every area of our life, we could be those who live by faith. Now, since the author is going to give us many great examples of people living by faith in the Old Testament, my heart's desire for this chapter is not to blow through it quickly, but to take our time and to really look at these people because it's not a redundant thing where it's like, this person lived by faith, then this person lived by faith, then this person. No, we're going to see different aspects of life lived by faith, and I think this is going to be really great for us to be able to kind of slowly go through, look at these examples, learn the the challenges, learn the application that God wants us to take from it, and hopefully really be blessed as we go through it. And so this morning, we're going to just start off where the author starts off with the very first individual and their life of faith, and that is the individual that we're going to see who is able really the first person to live by faith because Adam and Eve, they, they lived by sight. They saw God. They walked with him. You know, the first person to really live by faith was Abel. And so the author takes us to this gentleman, and we're going to see faith in worship. And really, the author is going to reveal to us three things that Abel's faith produced. First, it produced a right sacrifice. Second, it produced a righteous standing And third, it produced a repeating sermon. And so this morning, as we look at, you know, Abel's faith in worship, really, I I want us to challenge ourselves as we worship the Lord, 
Is it connected with faith? Do we see this in our own life? Does it produce a right sacrifice for us? A righteous standing and a repeated sermon. Now, before we look at what the author says about Abel's faith and worship in verse 4, I think it's really important that we take a look at verse 6, because really verse 6 is another one of those foundational verses that the rest of the chapter is built on. You obviously have the first portion of the definition of faith, but here we have something that all the other examples that we're going to look at have a connection to verse 6, because the author is going to reveal something very significant about faith and its importance, and so we're going to see that, and then we're going to look at Abel's life, and then next week as we look at other people's lives, we'll refer back to this verse because it's such an important understanding of faith and has great connection. I think it will help us uh, better understand each of the examples as well. And so let's start with verse 6, chapter 11, and learn this very important truth about faith. It says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, I would hope that all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ would say, I want to please Jesus. I want to please God. That's something that is within me, that is a desire that I have. I want to do that. And if that's you, if you want to please God, then what this verse says is so important for it to sink in because we're told something very important about pleasing God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, notice the author doesn't say that it's difficult to please God without faith. He says it's impossible to please God without faith. So if you want to please God, you have to have faith in God. Now, the author goes on to tell us some aspects of faith that are necessary in this pleasing God process. He says, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if you want to please God, you have to have faith in God in two very important and significant ways. First, you have to come to God believing that He is. Now, when the author says believe that God is, he's speaking about more than just believing that there is a God, that there is a higher power. He's speaking about believing in what God reveals about Himself in His Word. A.W. Pink wrote this, To believe that he is means much more than assenting to the fact of a first cause or to allow that there is a supreme being. It means to believe in the character of God as he has revealed himself in his works, in his word, and in Christ. He must be conceived of a right or otherwise. We are only pursuing a phantom of our own imagination. Thus, to believe that God is, is to exercise faith upon him as such a being as his word declares him to be, supreme, sovereign, holy, almighty, inflexibly just, yet abounding in mercy and grace toward poor sinners through Christ. So if you want to please God, the first thing that you need to do is have faith in the fact that God is the God of the Bible, the one that is described for us in the words of Scripture. 
You see, to believe in God as you conceive him to be, which is what a lot of people in our world today do, that's to believe in an idol, a God of your own making, a God of your own imagination. You see, we must believe in God as he declares himself to be. And if you don't believe in God as he describes himself in the Bible, guess what? You will never please him. And that's a sad reality for so many people who who do all this stuff thinking, I'm going to please God by this work or that work, but they don't believe in the God described for us in the pages of Scripture. And the Word of God says very clearly, all that they do will never please Him. So the start of our pleasing God is in believing what He declares about Himself in the Bible. We have to have faith in God in order to please God. But the second thing we must have faith in in order to please God is that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, this Greek word translated diligently seek means to seek something above all else until you find it. A word that would be used for buried treasure. I'm going to seek it above all else because the value of it is so great. I will keep looking until I find it. And this is what it's speaking of, of seeking God diligently above everything else until you find him. And you know what? The ultimate and greatest reward that God gives is himself. And this is something that we have to understand because some people are seeking God for, for all sorts of things, but recognize, you know what, the best thing that God can give is himself. I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. If you diligently seek me, guess what you will find? Me! Because I'm the best thing that you can have. A relationship with me, that is what I'll offer you. And for some people, like, oh yeah, well that's nice, but what about all this other stuff? That stuff's nothing in compared to me. I'll reward you with myself. We need to please God through believing He rewards those who diligently seek Him. You see, if you don't believe that God rewards those who diligently seek Him, guess what you won't do? Seek Him. I mean, think of this. If you didn't believe that God answered prayer, you wouldn't pray. What would be the point? Well, why pray? Nothing ever happens. Well, in the same way, why seek God if there's nothing that happens when I do? And so if I'm not someone who believes that God rewards those who diligently seek him, then I won't seek him. And if I won't seek him, I'm never going to be able to please him. I think it's interesting that throughout this letter, the author has encouraged us to draw near to God. He's encouraged us to seek God. And with each of those times that he tells us to either draw near or or seek or, or come close, He says there's a reward that God gives when you do that. Let me remind you of some of the examples of what our author has already told us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help or grace to help in time of need. If we'll come boldly to God, he will reward us with mercy and grace. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If we'll come to God in faith through Jesus Christ, guess what he's able to reward us with? Salvation. Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure 
water. Once again, draw near to God. What does He do? He rewards us, sprinkling our hearts, washing our bodies, cleansing us. You see, throughout this letter, the author has been telling us, hey, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And we need to believe that because it pleases God when we believe that and we act upon that by obeying that truth and coming to God. You know, this is something that you see throughout the Gospels. You see, people come to Jesus. Why? Because they believe that Jesus is God and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And there's people, all sorts of ailments, all sorts of diseases, all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues, and they would come to Jesus, and we see over and over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus says something to them. Your faith has made you well. What Jesus is saying is, because you believe that I am God, because you believe that I am a rewarder of those who diligently seek me and you sought me out and the reward that you were hoping I would give to you would be to meet your need. Well, guess what? The fact that you believe that about me, that I have the power to do that, that I'm willing to do that, I am now going to meet that need. Your faith in me has made you well. It pleased him. He was excited. He would see Gentiles do it, and he would be so pleased. (laughs) Greater faith in this Gentile than, than in all of Israel. It blessed Jesus when people did this, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you want to please God, you got to have faith in him in these two very important ways, believing that he is the God that the Bible describes, and also believing that he rewards those who diligently Seek Him. You see, really what you're doing is you're putting the definition of faith into action. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you must have faith that the God described in the Bible, He he does exist. That there is substance and evidence for God's existence. You almost also have faith that when you come to God, He will reward you. That there is substance and evidence for God's ability, God's willingness to reward those who diligently seek Him. And when you put that faith into practice, it pleases God. I think something important to understand about faith is faith is more than just believing in God. It's believing God. See, a lot of people believe in God or believe there is a God. And a lot of people in the church will say, oh yeah, I believe in God, but I don't believe what God says. That's believing God. And you can tell because they're not obedient to it. If you truly believe God, that's what really pleases him. You know, James says, well, the demons believe God and shudder. Believing in God's nothing. Even demons do that. It's believing God, believing what he says, and demonstrating it by acting upon it through obedience, which is really what every one of the examples that we're going to look at in Hebrews does. They believe God and they obey what he tells them to do. So now that we hopefully understand the significance of this verse and what it tells us about faith, we're going to look at this first example of faith, Abel's faith when it comes to worship. We're going to see how it produced a right sacrifice, a righteous standing, and a repeating sermon. Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he, we, he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So the author starts by sharing with us how Abel's faith produced a right standing before, or, or sorry, a right sacrifice before the Lord. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. What the author is doing, he's making reference back to Genesis chapter 4, where we have Cain and Abel making an offering of worship to God. Now, something important to note is with every person that the author lists here in Hebrews chapter 11, he's writing to, as we've noted many times, an initial audience that were Hebrews. They were Jewish. And they would have been very familiar with all of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. And so the author doesn't take the time to go into a lot of details about these individuals because he knows his initial audience would have been familiar with those details. And so he just kind of throws out something and you got to know the background of it to understand it the way the author wants. And so what I want us to do is not just assume We're all familiar with what happened with Cain and Abel. I want to take a moment for us to read Genesis 4, just the portion that the author is addressing, and get some understanding of what's happening here. So Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7 says this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So here we have the the, the third and fourth people on planet Earth. You have Adam and Eve's first two children, Cain and Abel. And we're told two things about Cain and Abel. Cain was a a farmer of crops and, and Abel is a shepherd of sheep. But we're also told something else. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So here we're told that both Cain and Abel, they they bring this offering of worship to God. Now something very important to note about these offerings of worship is that God appointed three very specific things concerning this offering that he desired. First, God appointed the time when he wanted this offering to be given. Second, God appointed the place where he wanted this offering presented to him. And third, God appointed the kind of offering that they were to present to him as worship. Now, notice at the beginning of verse three, we're told in the process of time, it came 
to pass. Now, the Hebrew phrase, in the process of time, could also be translated at the end of days. Some of your Bible translations translated that. It came to pass at the end of days. What the author is communicating with this phrase is that there was a specific time that God prescribed for this offering to be made. And this specific time was something that Cain and Abel were very aware of because they both present their offering at this specific time. But we're also told that Cain and Abel brought their offering to the Lord. Now, when it says to the Lord, notice that is revealing that there was a specific place in which God desired this offering to be brought. A specific place that God had appointed and revealed to them of here it is. Here's the time. Here's the place where I want you to bring this offering, and once again, we know that Cain and Abel knew this was the appointed place because that's where they both brought this offering to. So it's clear that God appointed a specific time and appointed a specific place, but he also appointed the kind of offering that he wanted Cain and Abel to present to him. Now we see this in a couple of different ways, and one of the ways we see this in the fact that God rejects Cain's offering because it wasn't the kind of offering that God wanted. But we also see this through the question that God asks after Cain's offering is rejected and his countenance falls and he gets upset. In verse 7, God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now what this verse is implying is that Cain knew what kind of offering would be well and acceptable to the Lord. God doesn't say, okay, you must have not understood. Let me tell you what it is. Say, hey, you know, if you do well, you're going to be accepted. I've already communicated to you the kind of offering that I want from you, Cain. You just chose not to give it. But God's saying, I'm giving you another opportunity. You know how to do it. You know, if you do well, if you give me what I've asked of you, it will be accepted. Now, unfortunately, Cain doesn't choose to give a different offering, the offering that God wanted but it shows that he knew what the offering was supposed to be. And so when it comes to this offering of Cain and Abel, I think it's very important to note that there's a God-appointed time and place and kind of offering that God wanted. Now, both Cain and Abel, they abided by the first two things. They both abided by the time, and they abided by the place. But only Abel abided by the God-appointed kind of offering. Cain did not offer to God the kind of offering that God desired. And that is why Abel had the right sacrifice and Cain did not. Something important to understand about worship of God is that worship that God accepts from us is worship that God prescribes to us. The worship that God accepts from us is the worship that God prescribes to us. You see, God will only accept worship from us in a way that He has appointed, in a way that He has prescribed to us. Something we need to understand is not all worship is acceptable worship to God. When we worship in ways that we prescribe, when we worship in ways that we feel should be the way that we can do things in our worship, Instead of worshiping God and how he has prescribed and and what he has appointed should be done, well, guess what? That worship's not accepted. Doing our own thing, coming to God our own way, presenting our own stuff that God hasn't asked for, 
That's not worship that is accepted before him. And that's what we see with how God responds to Cain and how God responds to Abel and their offering of worship. God accepts Abel's offering of worship ultimately because Abel offers what God prescribes and God rejects Cain's offering of worship, but Cain did not offer what God prescribed. Now notice the connection here because the author of Hebrews really says that the main issue here is an issue of faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And so God God is saying, hey, the reason that Abel's offering was more excellent, was accepted, was because it was offered in faith. And the reason that Cain's offering was rejected and not accepted is because it wasn't offered in faith. But something important to understand is there is a direct connection with faith in God and doing what God has prescribed and commanded us to do. Romans 10.17 tells us, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, the start of biblical faith is when you hear the word of God, and you believe what God says, and then you take a step and act upon what God has said, and obey it. So the only way to have biblical faith is to have faith in what God has revealed, what God has prescribed, whether that be about himself, whether it be more specifically about how he wants to be worshipped. God prescribed, God revealed to Cain and Abel the time, the place, the kind of offering that he wanted, but only Abel offered it by faith, believing this is what God truly wanted, this is what God prescribed, this is what God declared, and so that is why only Abel's offering was accepted and why Cain's was not. Now, the kind of worship that God wanted is something that God revealed to Adam and Eve as well right after they sinned. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, they they realized something they had never realized before. They realized that they are naked. And their response to that was they tried to cover their nakedness, to cover their sin. And what did they use? They they used fig leaves. Interesting. They they took from the, the fruit of the ground, the fig leaves, and they sewed them together, and they tried to cover themselves with it. But you know, God knew that wasn't going to work. That covering wasn't going to be sufficient to cover, not just their nakedness, but to cover their sin. And so God does something, and sometimes people can just miss it because it's told that God made for them this covering from the skin of animals. But guess what? You can't just skin an animal and that be still alive. This is the first death that we have ever. God had to kill an animal in order to cover the nakedness, the sin of Adam and Eve. And this is a, something that through this death and through this covering, I think they would have learned three very important things. First, they learned that mankind needs a covering for their sin. The day that they sinned, the day that they saw they were naked, the day that they uh, recognized that reality, they knew, I need a covering. Second, they learned that God will not accept a covering of their own making. Oh, they tried their own thing. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. That didn't work. And they recognized, what I try to do to cover myself, God's not going to accept. God had to do and cover me with his prescribed method. And third, they learn the covering for sin only comes through the death of an innocent 
substitutes. Blood must be shed in order for sin to be covered. So right after the first sin, really God is establishing this reality that sin just can't be covered by by our own work of getting fig leaves or whatever it may be. It has to be covered through the death of an innocent substitute. And I believe that's something that God clearly reveals to Cain and Abel as well, whether he reveals it to them through Adam and Eve or whether he speaks to them personally. But they both come to this God-appointed time and place to make their offering, but only Abel offers this offering of faith based on what God had required. And you see, because of Cain's lack of faith, he really leaves out two important elements to his offering. First, the the kind of, uh, he left out the quality of the offering, and second, he left out the kind of offering. And you really see this as you contrast Cain and Abel's offering to the Lord In verse 4, we're told, Abel brought to God of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now, the Hebrew word translated of their fat speaks of the choicest and the best parts of the animal. We also see in the Bible that the firstborn, the the first fruits, that's something that's very important to God. He wants us to to give to him of, of the first things that we receive, not out of the leftover junk. So Abel offers to God the first and the best of what he had. But notice we're told that Cain just gave of the fruit of the ground. There's no no specific thing like there is with Abel of of recognizing it's the first fruit or it's the best fruit as Abel's was described. And so it seems that Cain did not offer to God the first or the best of what he had. Several years ago, the, the Butterball Company They set up a Thanksgiving hotline to answer questions about cooking turkeys. And one woman calls in and says, you know, I've had a turkey sitting at the bottom of my freezer for the last 15 years. Is that something that's safe to eat? And the butterball expert tells her, well, you know, if it was below zero the entire time, it will be safe to eat. But I want to warn you, the flavor is going to be gone. It's going to have deteriorated and it's not going to be worth eating. The woman said, That's what I thought. We'll give this turkey to our church. Cain was like this woman. He didn't offer to God the first or the best. Abel gave God his first and best because he had faith that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Cain did not give God his first and best because he didn't believe that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the first thing that Cain lacked in his offering was the the quality that he should have brought. But the more important thing is the kind of thing that he should have brought. We're told that Abel offered an animal sacrifice and and Cain offered the fruit that he grew from the ground. Now remember back in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, the author told us, Indeed under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Only a blood sacrifice is acceptable to God to atone for sin. A grain offering, a fruit offering, that's not acceptable to God to atone for sin. Now, Genesis 4 does not specifically tell us whether Cain and Abel are offering a sin offering or not, But the author of Hebrews, as we're going to make it to pretty soon in chapter 12, he does seem to uh, reveal 
a connection between Abel's offering and a sin offering. He tells us this in Hebrews 12, 24. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This verse seems to connect Jesus and his shed blood on the cross with the sacrifice that Abel made back in the Garden of Eden. And something important to realize is Jesus' sacrifice is definitely a sin offering. Thank goodness for us. He sacrificed himself on the cross for our sin. And if these two are being connected together, then that would allude to the fact that Abel's offering was also a sin offering. So Cain's offering was not an offering of faith because he did not offer the kind of offering that God had prescribed. Cain did not come with the shedding of blood. He did not come with an animal sacrifice, which God declares is essential in order to offer a sin offering. Really, Cain just came with the fruit of his own labors. Cain came with his own works. Instead of putting his faith and obeying what God prescribed, he just offered what he wanted to offer. You see, the main difference between Cain and Abel's offering is that Abel brought what God wanted, and Cain brought what Cain wanted. And when you look at worship today among people, I think this is a way to kind of sum up so much of what it is. There are those who are like Abel, and they bring to God what God wants. And they know what God wants because God declares what he wants in his word. And so by faith, they are believing what God has declared, and they are acting upon that. And in obedience, they are doing what God has told them to do. And then you have those who are like Cain, and they offer to God what they want. Oh, well, God, you, you can have this or that, or, or I'll work my way to you, or, or I'll do this or that. And as we mentioned before, God does not accept that kind of worship. When you reject what he has prescribed, you are rejecting his approval. You know, we remember the only worship that God accepts from us is the worship that God prescribes to us. So if you want your offering of worship to be something that God accepts, offer it in faith believing and obeying what God has appointed and prescribed us to offer him. So the first thing that the author reveals about Abel's faith and what it produced is it produced a right sacrifice because it was offered in faith according to what God appointed and prescribed concerning how he wanted to be worshipped. If we want that right sacrifice, guess what? we got to offer things to God in faith believing and trusting in what he has clearly prescribed in his word for us. The second thing the author reveals about what Abel's faith produced is it produced a righteous standing. And we see this in the middle of verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. So after Abel offered God an, an offering in faith, what God prescribed he wanted, an offering of an animal sacrifice, an offering that would cover sin, that enabled Abel to obtain witness that he was righteous. 
And I think this is another reason why I, I definitely lean strongly to the fact that Cain and Abel were offering sin offerings, because none of the other offerings make someone righteous. Well, someone would, that was the key. That was the offering that would ultimately cover sin to deal with our sin issue that keeps us from being that way. Now, the reason that God viewed Abel as righteous is because of Abel's faith in God. Because Abel put his faith in God's prescribed sacrifice for sin. So God didn't declare Abel righteous because of a work that Abel did for God. God declared Abel righteous because of Abel's faith in God. And that's kind of the heart of every example that we're going to see of the righteousness of Abraham or whoever. It comes back to faith in God and his way of covering sin. So the second thing that the author reveals about what Abel's faith produced is it produced a righteous standing because Abel had faith in God and in what God declares will cover sin. Now, here's something that's interesting to note. If you start here at the very beginning, you start working your way all the way to Jesus. So the, through the whole Old Testament to the very beginning of the Gospels or actually the end of the Gospels, you have the start here of Abel and God requires one lamb for one man. Later on, we're going to see Passover. God's going to require one lamb for one family. And then after that, we're going to have the Day of Atonement, and God's going to require one lamb for the nation of Israel. And then much farther after that, we have the most important sacrifice of all, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, where God says, one lamb for the entire world. But it starts back here, the very first sacrifice, and it starts to show itself all the way to Jesus Christ. So the third thing the author reveals to us about what Abel's faith produced is it produced a repeating sermon. And we see this at the end of verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So Abel's faith offering to God of a sacrificial lamb, the author said, is something that still speaks to future generations. It's still speaking or preaching this sermon, even though he's already dead. It's declaring a message that righteousness before God comes through faith in God in the way that God has prescribed for us. But here's something that's important to note and think about. James Moffat wrote this, Death is never the last word. When a man leaves this world, be he righteous or unrighteous, he leaves something in the world. He may leave something that will grow and spread like a cancer or a poison, or he may leave something like a fr the fragrance or perfume of a blossom of beauty that permeates the atmosphere with beauty. Here's the reality. Each one of us is going to leave our mark. We're going to leave our legacy on this world. The question is, what kind of legacy are you leaving? Is it a legacy of faith in God? Of the way to salvation like Abel? Or is it a legacy of doing things your own way? Trying to work your own salvation like Cain? 
You see, both legacies are going to have a a lasting impact on future generations. One legacy is going to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ and a relationship with God for all eternity in heaven. And another legacy is going to lead people to trusting themselves, to doing their own thing, ultimately away from God and an eternity in hell. So make sure you choose wisely the kind of legacy that you leave. So it's not just your life, but the lives that you impact as well. So the third thing the author reveals to us about what Abel's faith produced is it produced a repeating sermon that revealed to future generations the importance of faith in God and His prescribed method of dealing with sin. Abel's legacy really, as I already mentioned, points to the cross. It points to the ultimate lamb. It points to Jesus, the one who gave his life, the one who willingly chose to die for the sins of myself and you and this entire world. And so we're going to close this morning as it's the first Sunday of the month, taking some time just to remember the sacrifice, remember what Jesus did for us on the cross And I want you to think not only back towards the cross, but I want you to think towards what kind of legacy, what kind of impact are you having on your family, on your coworkers, on your neighbor, on on this world around us as we remember the impact of Jesus on us? Is our faith in that? Are we living a life that is impacting this world? Are we walking in an obedient way that people are seeing the impact of what Jesus has done for us, that it draws them to Him? Are we having a legacy that causes people to go away from Him? So I'm going to have the worship team come on up. Lead us in a song of worship. I encourage you. You can either sing along and really just focus on these words and allow them to minister to you. But you know what? Maybe you just need to get quiet before the Lord. I always encourage you before we take communion, if there's unconfessed sin, something that you know that you've done that you haven't got right with the Lord, before we remember that, I want to encourage you just to come before the Lord, ask for His forgiveness. Be so grateful that His work on the cross has dealt with that, has covered that, has made you white as snow but I encourage you to to take a little time just to get right with him if you need to do that. And so uh, let's go ahead and then we'll take communion after this song.